Welcome to Torati Mecha Nachyomi with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Leah Herzog, and today we will be studying Sefer Amos, Perikhet, the Book of Amos, Chapter 8. At the end of Perik Zion, Chapter 7, there is an interchange between Amos and Amatzia, who is the high priest presiding in Beit El. As we explained previously, Beit El was one of the two official temples of the Northern Kingdom. After the United Kingdom of Israel split after the death of Shlomo, Yeravam ben Navat, the first king of the northern kingdom, established an official temple in Beit El as well as one in Dan, as an alternative to the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem. He explained to the people that he wanted to make their lives easier, so that they did not always have to go up to Jerusalem, a fairly arduous and mountainous journey, to bring sacrifices and serve Hashem. Yeravam ben Nevat's choice of Beit El was very shrewd, because the name means House of God, and it was named that by Yaakov after he awoke from his famous dream of the ladder going up to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. By Amos's time, more than 150 years after Yeravam ben Nevat, Beit El was entrenched in the culture and in the people's minds as the place where you go to bring sacrifices and serve Hashem. They were oblivious, whether intentionally or not, that Hashem does not want to be served there, that the golden calf that was housed there was idolatrous, and that the whole avodah, or sacred service, was disgusting to him. In Beit El, Amos rebukes the people, the courts, and the priests for the hypocritical ritual and their oppression of the poor. He offers a series of visions and parallels and culminates with the prediction of the fall of the house of Yeravam ben Yoash, the reigning monarch. Amatzia the high priest here alls this and takes it both personally and professionally as a threat. He sends a message to the king that Amos is committing treason which Yeravam ben Yoash, to his tremendous credit, does not believe. Amatya seems to threaten Amos personally, ordering him to go to Yehuda, the southern kingdom, and prophesy there, and leave them, the northern kingdom, alone. Amos flagrantly ignores Amatya, and the chapter ends with another warning of destruction, this one directed not only at Bnei Yisrael in general, but at Amatya and at his household in particular. Perikhet, chapter 8, opens with the words, Koher ani Hashem Elohim, vihine kluv kayetz. The literal translation of this verse is, This is what Hashem has shown me. Behold, a summer basket. There is a debate amongst the commentaries as to what the phrase kluv kayetz means, and most explain that it is a basket containing summer fruit, such as figs. It is the play on the word kayetz, however, meaning summer, that is important for the next verse. Hashem explains the meaning of the kluv kayetz. Ba haketz el ami Israel lo osif od avorlo. The hour of doom has come for my people Israel. I will not pardon them again. This kind of vision, where the name of the object is what bears as much, if not more, significance than the object itself, is also found in the book of Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, which you have already learned. In chapter 1, Yirmiyahu, Hashem asks him, as he asks Amos in our chapter, What did you see? 
And Yirmiyahu answers there, Makel shaked an almond branch. And Hashem tells Yirmiyahu, You have seen well, because shoked ani, I am quick to fulfill my word. Here too, Hashem is telling Amos that the meaning of the vision, the kluv kayets, is that it is a basket or an entrapment. The fate, the kates, the doom and destruction is unavoidable. And Amos continues in Pasuk Gimel, in verse 3, V'helilu shirot hechal bayom ha'hu ne'um Hashem alokim, rav ha'peger bekol makom, hishlich has, and the singing women of the palace will howl that day, declares my Lord Hashem. So many corpses he has cast everywhere. Hush! The same women who were partying, playing instruments, and drinking wine from golden vessels will now be wailing and keening because of the overwhelming death and destruction. The next section of this chapter seems to leave Amos, Amatzia, and Betel and focuses again on B'nai Israel as a whole. Verse 4 begins, as earlier prophecies do, as follows. Shim'u zot. Listen to this. Hasho'afim evyon vilashbit aniye aretz. Listen to this, you who devour the needy, annihilating the poor of the land. Lemor mataya avor hachodesh vinashbira shever vehashabat vinifthachabar lahaktin efa ulahakdil shekel laavet mozne mirma saying, If only the new moon were over, and we could sell grain, the Shabbat, and we could offer wheat for sale, giving short measures of grain, but using oversized weight for the silver received in payment, using an efa that is too small, and a shekel that is too big, lifting a dishonest scale. Liknot bekesef dalim ve'evyon ba'avur na'alayin, umapal Bar Nashpil. We will buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, and we will sell grain refuse as grain. These words hearken back to the earlier prophecies of Amos, such as those in chapter 2 and 3. These verses are describing how the people would wait eagerly for Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, and Shabbat to be over so that they could go back to the markets and to their businesses, not to earn an honest living, but to cheat the poor. The irony here is blatant and tragic. The people keep the laws of the new moon and Shabbat. They cease conducting business. They offer sacrifices. And in their own eyes, they are observing the laws. And for an honest business, it is understandable and could be forgiven that he waits for Shabbat or Rosh Chodesh to pass so that he can go back to earning a living, especially if the commercial world around him hasn't taken that day off from work. Earning a living is challenging, and taking a day, quote, off is definitely a commitment and one that should be lauded. But these people, the wealthy and the powerful, don't need the money they earn in order to survive and their behavior in the marketplace and in the courts makes a farce of Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh. These people want to go back to work because there is an additional thrill in it. They get to cheat the poor in all sorts of ways. They rob the poor of the basics, like shoes, 
thereby robbing them of their dignity. They sell garbage to the poor as if it were truly edible nourishing food, and they use false weights and measures, robbing the poor of the little money that they have and money that they have earned through hard work and menial labor. The prohibition of using false weights and measures can be found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. And immediately following these laws is the section known as Zachor, the command to remember, never forget, and wipe out Amalek for what they did to us in the desert. What makes Amalek's actions so heinous, as the Malbim explains, is that Amalek had no legitimate reason whatsoever to attack us. We had not attacked him, we were not threatening his borders, and we laid no claim to his land. Amalek attacked us for the simple thrill of war and killing. And this fact is supported by the evidence that he attacked us from behind, killing the women, the children, the elderly, and the weak. Chazal, our sages, learned from the juxtaposition of verses the smichut between false weights and Amalek, that one who cheats in business is considered as wantonly cruel as Amalek and as deserving of punishment. It is therefore clear from Amos's words in chapter 8 that B'nai Israel took the same cruel pleasure from cheating the poor that Amalek, one of our most mortal enemies, took from attacking us. And in punishment, as a midah keneged midah, for ignoring the laws of justice and kindness, Hashem will overturn the natural law itself. Amos warns in Pasuk Tet, verse 9, and on that day, declares Hashem, I will make the sun set at noon. I will darken the earth on a sunny day. This means that the entire sense of stability, the security of their lives and what they see as natural law will be overturned and lost. In the Torah, as in much of literature and philosophy, light and darkness, day and night, are both literal and metaphorical. From the moment of creation, light and day represent Hashem's presence in the world, goodness, kindness, justice, morality, and things being in the proper order with a capital O. Darkness and night represent the opposite, evil, chaos, immorality, and sin. Unlike other religions at the time, which firmly believed in dualism and that one deity could not be all things, Judaism represents the belief in Hashem Echad, the oneness and the unity of Hashem. Hashem can punish as well as reward, bring about evil as well as good, and can even overturn the very laws of nature that He created. Amos is trying to remind the people of this, to warn them, and to urge them to do teshuva, to repent and change. Because, if they don't, Behold, a time is coming, declares Hashem, when I will send a famine to the land not a hunger for bread, nor a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of Hashem. 
This pasuk, this verse, according to the commentaries, is referring to a time in the future when there will be no prophecy. This time is either already early in the second temple period, after the death of Malachi, the last prophet, or after the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE. At the time that Amos is prophesying, there are prophets and prophecies all over the place. They are telling the people exactly what Hashem wants and exactly what Hashem thinks. But the people not only ignore the prophets, they try, plan, and sometimes succeed in silencing them. And as Midah Keneged Midah, a punishment that is in keeping with the crime, Hashem removes the Nevi'im and Nevu'ah, the prophets and prophecies, from the world. And then, when it is too late, Bnei Yisrael will desperately seek out Hashem. As a starving person searches for food, as a parched person is literally dying for water, so too we will be haunted and driven nearly mad by the mortal blow of losing Hashem's presence. We will feel the full brunt of this loss, the divisiveness and the chaos that will ensue and threaten to engulf and destroy us. It is not a stretch to say that not knowing what Hashem wants from us is the hardest burden of all to bear, and it is the true meaning of galut, of exile. What Amos describes in verse 12 becomes the reality of Jewish history itself. V'na'u miyam adyam u'mitzafon ve'ad mizrach yishotetu levakesh et devar Hashem. And the people will wander from sea to sea, from the north to the east they will roam, seeking the word of Hashem. Bayom hahu titalafna habitulot hayafot v'habachurim bitzama. And on that day the beautiful maidens and the young men shall fall and faint from thirst. The commentaries point out that both maidens and young men are metaphorical. These maidens and young men are us, B'nai Yisrael, and rather than be desirable and strong, they will be dying of thirst, the thirst for Torah, for wisdom, and for Hashem's presence. And as the famous parable in the Talmud describes, B'nai Yisrael without Torah cannot survive any more than a fish without water. Amos describes the physical and metaphysical impact of the deprivation of Hashem and his prophets. Chapter 8 ends ominously. Hanishbe'im be'ashmat shumrun ve'amru chei elokechadan ve'chei derech be'er sheva ve'naflu ve'lo yakumu od. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, saying, As your God lives, Dan, and as the way to Be'er Sheva lives, they shall fall to rise no more. The punishment that awaits him, particularly the northern kingdom, the destruction and subsequent exile, is irreversible. Once the ten tribes of the north are exiled, they will be lost. The Assyrian practice of moving conquered people peoples to the far reaches of its empire, ensures that these Jews will become so far flung and so disconnected that they will fall to rise no more. They will be the ten lost tribes. Thank you for studying together. Le'ilui nishmat Riva Schwab, Rivka Bat Alexander Sender.